It's good to be home, and it's uh, a privilege to be here with you on this very important day, not just in the life of the church universally, but in the life of sanctuary. And um, as I was preparing for this message, I really felt compelled to think of the question, is there any resonance, is there any echo, is there any sort of harmonic between the movements and the events of Palm Sunday as we hear them in the Gospels and the movement of sanctuary to a new space? And so, as much as I would like to give a sermon on Palm Sunday that is maybe really theological or esoteric, give you something that is very much anchored in the historical events of the day, Palm Sunday can go so many ways, specifically in the sense of Roman Empire and conventional thoughts regarding power. This text just pushes back so hard. But one of the things that I love about Holy Scripture is that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again because that was a good chance to say amen. One of the things I appreciate so much about Holy Scripture is that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what that means, I got a hallelujah. (laughs) I knew it. I knew it. You'd get 10 bucks after the service. <laughs> he knew I wanted that. Um, one, but what, what, what we have to understand is the Spirit can take these texts in so many different ways. And I really felt, I mean, I sat with this probably for two weeks thinking about today in this moment and this final gathering in this space. But more than talking about the final gathering here I want to take advantage of this time to talk about the movement from here. 200 years before this story, a gentleman named Judas Maccabeus came into Jerusalem and he overthrew the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're looking for a name, we have boys that are going to be born in this church this year. And I think it'd be nice to have a Judas Maccabeus, and it would be nice to have an Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm just saying, that's free. Take credit for it. Judas Maccabeus enters Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple of Gentile corruption. These Jewish people who, after 70 years in Babylonian exile, struggling to put one foot in front of another under leadership of men like Ezra and Nehemiah that we're so familiar with in our Bible, uh, they finally have this hope that the kingdom's being restored, and for 100 years, his dynasty continues. And all of their hopes come crashing down with Roman occupation that has been somewhere between 50 and 100 years before this Palm Sunday. Very disappointing. Very much like finding out your building is not zoned to be used as a church. (laughs) 
And then a man in a camel skin coat eating bugs comes out of the wilderness and he says, repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. This is very exciting language because they haven't had a prophet since Malachi and they certainly haven't heard a prophet talking about the kingdom probably since Daniel. Their heart is lifted up within them with this idea of kingdom. And our text in Mark today, all of the gospel writers talk about this story, but each one of them brings a different angle, a different emphasis. Uh, so Matthew that I referred to earlier, his emphasis is not, it's really on Jesus fulfilling prophetic language. He goes back to Zechariah 9 and he's, he's using the language of the donkey, okay? Mark is not concerned with that. Mark is concerned with kingdom. Jesus is inaugur- inaugurating a kingdom. And I want to tell you, if you haven't heard this said, that all of the pastors and leaders that Pastor Brent and I have been interacting with, whether it's Pastor Jamie from Woodlake Church, whether it's the elders who stood here with us this morning, everybody has been using this word kingdom. Specifically over and against individual church communities or denominations. The theme that I keep hearing over and over again is that this is about the kingdom of God, not our individual ministries. Isn't that refreshing? Where there is one church, there's one body, there's one Lord. His name is Jesus, and he has one church. He doesn't have many churches. He has many expressions of that church, but he doesn't just have one particular group that's got all the answers. And it's easy for us to forget that our lives as individuals, our family units, Our church communities are contextualized, they are held together, and they are connected to something much bigger than themselves. As men and women of faith, we are connected to the kingdom of God. The reality of the church is to serve a fallen and broken world by revealing the kingdom of God, not the church. That's why we're here. It's so easy for us to forget that we live as citizens of a kingdom. I mean, consider for a moment how foreign to 21st century Americans is this idea of a kingdom. We're trained to think that it's bad. We're trained to think that monarchy equals corruption. Monarchy equals abuse. Monarchy basically is tyranny in fancy robes. And here come prophets announcing a kingdom. Here comes Jesus telling us to seek first a kingdom. It's not really that much of a stretch to think there might be some friction in our souls over this. The reason I've entitled this sermon, Remember the King, is I want us to take a moment as we enter into Holy Week, take a moment as we enter into a new space that God has miraculously provided for us. Hello, if this isn't a holy hint, I don't know what is. You know, it's like the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus, like that 1,000 is like this number that's like, whoa, it's a big number. A million is a big number. God's like, you know what? Let me give you a building for a million dollars left. Less. We have a million left, I guess, too. 
Amen. But in this moment of transition, in this moment of movement, it's kingdom movement. It's not movement by committee. It's not movement by preference. We didn't walk around to all the churches in Tulsa and say, you know what, we like that one. God give us that one. We didn't walk in and say, this is where God wants us. You're going to have to find a new space. We didn't do that. We whimpered, we cried, and we hid in the closet for a little while until the realtor called and said, I think this might work. (laughs) And we came like we come to Eucharist every Sunday with our hands out, dependent and needy. And we have a good, good father. Our father is a king. This is such a, a, a radical dynamic for us because this kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. I want to bring us back to that theme. Augustine, one of the great fathers of the Western church, listen to what he says. Christ was not the king of Israel so that he might exact attacks or equip an army with weaponry and visibly vanquish an enemy. He was the king of Israel. We're not going to like this. In that he might in that he rules minds, in that he gives counsel for eternity, in that he leads into the what? Kingdom of heaven for those who believe, hope, and love. Beatty, who's another uh, important voice in the church in the seventh century, he says, for it was not God's pleasure to give an earthly kingdom to the powerful, but a heavenly kingdom to the gentle. In Mark 10, which clearly precedes Mark 11, (laughs) Jesus has just spent some time recasting a vision for authority. And he says, the disciples started all of this by saying, we want the best seats of power when you set up your kingdom. And he's like, you have no idea what you're asking for. He said, in this kingdom, authority is not cast in terms of control and manipulation. It's not cast in terms of prestige and prominence. This is a kingdom, friends, listen to this, of serving. I'm glad nobody said amen. And I'm dead serious. This is a kingdom Listen, that is energized by faith, but it is realized by service, not volunteerism. Paul never starts a letter by saying, behold, the volunteer of the Lord, who upon sizing up all the options decided this would be the most fulfilling way to be active in religious affairs. He says, I'm a bond slave. I'm a bond servant. We live in a country, a culture of options. We live in a culture that prizes convenience and comfort above all else. And in that culture, we find talk of a king and a kingdom. And in this kingdom, the movers and the shakers are not those, as Jesus said in this 45th verse of the 10th chapter of Mark, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In other words, 
there's going to be some effort required. One of the, the, the things I love about Scripture is the small details that slip by me. I've read the Bible so much. I was born in a pastor's home and always memorizing verses and Sunday school and children's church and Royal Rangers and youth group and blah, 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 blah. And then you see this phrase, verse 1 of the 11th chapter, when they were approaching Jerusalem. When they were approaching Jerusalem. From where? Well, let's back up. The end of the 10th chapter, verse 46, they came to Jericho. And this is where he ran into Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar. They arrive in Jerusalem from Jericho. Does anybody remember Jericho from the Bible? Jericho is the place of Israel's first victory. Israel crosses the Jordan, miraculously parted as the priests walked into that water with the, the, the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And I began to think about this. The last thing I would want to do, having walked around Jericho for a week and seen the walls, as we sang, come a-tumbling down, routing this mighty city, I would want to revel in that victory. I might want to buy some land in Jericho. I might want to do that. The last thing I'd want to do, having walked through the wilderness for 40 years, crossed through a Jordan River, and taken down a mighty city, the last thing I want to do is fight again. Hello. It's like when I do one chore around the house, I just like to walk around that completed chore and be like, man, that car looks great. There's a second car, but we're not going to even talk about that this week. We're just looking at this car. But isn't that true of our Christian lives? One victory and we're ready not just to set up camp, we're ready to build a town. We've got victory over television. We've got victory over debt. We've got victory over lust. And boy, we're ready to camp out at that place of victory and just revel, revel, revel. But the fact is, we cannot afford to stay in the place of our first victory we have to be ready to move into purpose. Friends, please hear me. We're going to go over to that building tonight. I pray you all join me because this, this is not just a thing. This is a spiritual moment of two church communities coming together to bless one another and to pass a baton. But here's the thing. We can't constantly be in this Jericho mindset to say, can you believe God gave us, gave us this building? This is amazing. We can't go into this new space and be like, wow, this is so much better. Our parking lot's not a lake today. Right? No, no. Jericho has its place, and its place is to propel you into another victory. The walls have come a-tumbling down. Yes, and we're going to walk into that place tonight, and we're going to celebrate, and we're going to rejoice. And boy, when we get together and we wash feet on Maundy Thursday, and we enter into the depths of Christ's passion on Good Friday, we come in on Sunday morning, we're baptizing folks, we're going to be dancing and shouting and swinging. We have chandeliers to swing from now. We're... 
We're going to be doing all this good stuff, but here's the thing. There comes a moment where you realize you can't stay at Jericho if you're ever going to get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where God has revealed his name. Jerusalem is the place where God says, I'll put my presence in that place. We can never get to the fullness of God's purpose if we insist on staying in and reveling in victories. Other thing about Jericho that's very interesting is Jericho is the lowest city on the planet. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. I don't know if you can tell this about me or not, but I am not a hiker. I like to exert my mind, not my core. And cardio is of the devil. (laughs) Thank you. I was looking for baby a hallelujah. Anybody feel it? Jerusalem is not just the place where God has chosen to reveal his name. Jerusalem is hard to get to. Many of us find it hard to get to church on Sunday morning or Sunday night for that matter. Can I tell you that that walk from Jericho to Jerusalem was much harder than anything we've had to do getting to church on a Sunday? 800 feet below to 3,000 feet above, through a lot of rock, a lot of stone, not a lot of shade, not a lot of foliage, desolate land, all uphill. Friends, God's got us on the move. And as much as I talked to Bishop Head last night on FaceTime, just to talk about this sermon with him a little bit. And of course, from New York, he's like, oh, great, go for it. I'm like, do you want to come here and preach it for me? Can you get on a plane and fly over? Because everybody in this room is going to have to make a choice. Why did God give us all these extra seats and all these extra rooms and all these extra parking places? How is God going to fill these spaces? He's going to fill these spaces by our faithful sweatiness. He's going to fill these spaces one faithful step at a time as he gives us the grace. He's inviting us to participate. He's not pointing at us and commanding us to do. He's saying, folks, sanctuary, I want to do some amazing things, and I've chosen you to walk with me from Jericho to Jerusalem. I've chosen you to put one faithful foot in front of another, one drop of sweat in front of another, to be as servants who know how to climb over the rocks. We're going to stub our toes. We're going to get sore. We're going to get cranky, we're going to forgive one another, and we're going to keep walking. I wonder if we shouldn't see this sort of physical movement as a corporate shift in our mentality. There are people, I've come to learn this, I've spent the majority of my eight months on the ground in Tulsa just wanting to observe, just wanting to listen, just wanting to ask questions. I understand that there are so many people who have found sanctuary to be a safe place. Can you wave a hand if you know what I'm talking about? It's a safe place. It's a healing place. It's a restoring place. 
It's where people can come and find health and find strength again. And if that's what you need right now, I want you to avail yourself of that. But if I'm your pastor, please just hear me say this. If you're better, let's go. If God has been able to restore you, if God has been able to be that balm in Gilead that you've needed so desperately, it is not time to sit on the sideline. It's time to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's time to sort of pull up our our robes, roll up our sleeves, whatever it may be, and start sweating a little bit. I mean, this is very practical. Maybe you'll you'll run me out of town for saying it. What if we didn't think? So I sit in staff meetings. I'll just be in plain now. We have, no, we have no kids workers. I've never been in a church that has as many kids as sanctuary. It's incredible. They're everywhere. They're crawling all over everything, running all over everything. There's babies everywhere. And it's awesome. No hallelujah on that one. The babies are awesome. But here's the deal. Somebody's got to love them. Who's going to do it? What if God gave us another hundred kids? We can't watch after the kids we've got. Well, I like to be in the service. Jesus probably wished he could have took a helicopter to Jerusalem. Imagine this. He's walking knowing he can teleport. Every step, like, Father, really? (laughs) I could just be there right now. He's going to do it for Philip in Acts chapter 8, right? He's going to do it. He could have just done No. He walks up. I'm not talking to the people who need healing. I'm not talking to the people who are in a vulnerable place. I'm not talking to you. I want you to be healed. I want you to recovered, be recovered. I'm talking to you who are strong, who are well, who've been blessed by this house. Now bless the house. Work in ways that are uncomfortable. What would happen if we rejected the idea that there's such a thing as retiring in the kingdom of God? I heard this in New York, never in Tulsa, never. So I'm just going to beat on New York because I was there last week and now I can say it. I heard, oh, I worked for so long. Let the other people do the work. I'm like... Where? Where again? What am I missing? Hello, John on Patmos at 90. Hello? Paul, at the end of his life, I fought right up until the end. Jesus in John 13, I've loved them till the end. There's no retirement in this kingdom. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength the whole way. What if we stopped waiting for the right opportunity? I'm just waiting for them to put a road to Jerusalem. This path is a little rocky. When they get a road, it'll be much smoother. Well, it'll probably get there at the same time because we'll go more quickly, you know? How about we stop waiting for the right ministry to start? We stop waiting for the right opportunity to come along. And we just start doing something. You see, this is a king who rides a donkey. This is not a king who rides a palomino. 
He doesn't come in on a steed. He comes in on the most humble of beasts. Imagine hearing the prophet Zechariah announcing this oracle where he's talking about this triumphant king. He's talking about this victorious king. And then his next line, who rides a donkey. I mean, we're familiar with this. This is part of the Palm Sunday lore, right? Jesus, the king on a donkey. But this is shocking. It's cognitive dissonance in the ears of its original hearers. Because this donkey is not only a beast of burden, it is a beast of humility. And friends, humility displaces our illusions of self-importance. Self-importance will do more damage to our relationships than just about anything else. Humility drives that far from us. Humility will quench our stubbornness that leads to so many of our arguments. Do you know anybody who has to have the last word? You remember two Sundays ago, I said this. I'm shifting gears. I'm not even going there. Two Sundays ago, I said this. We're going to go on a complaint fast. So I'm not going to complain about the feedback I get during the service. (laughs) But remember this? What did I say? Looking at learning from Israel who complained along the way, what did we say? We said, patience will overcome our tendency to complain. Humility will overcome our tendency to argue. If you're an argumentative person, I am preaching at you. That was a joke. I'm not supposed to preach at anybody. I'm sharing with you. Okay? Humility will overcome our propensity to argue. But here's the thing, it will also catalyze us. It will, in, it will inspire us, it will inspirit us to the faithful service God requires of us. First Corinthians chapter four, moreover it is required that servants be found faithful. Humility is the outdoing one another in showing honor. Humility is not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Well, I don't do that. What? I don't ride donkeys. Okay. Humility is the strong putting up with the failings of the weak, Paul says. It is Paul refusing his rightful financial support in Corinth. And it is Peter leaving Joppa and his comfort zone to go with Cornelius. Humility is Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And you've probably heard me say this. It's one of my favorite quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Jesus did not go to the cross so you wouldn't have to. He went to the cross so you could join him there. Jesus is not humble for us in the sense that we don't have to be humble. He's humble for us in that as we enter into his life, we share in his humility. Think of the verse that launched this section, the fifth verse of Philippians 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. St. John of the Ladder, I would love that title, by the way. He says that not only is humility the mother of all virtues, it is the one virtue which demons cannot fake. We're so uh, concerned with maybe learning our Bibles, but demons know the Bible very well. Remember the temptation in the wilderness. Maybe we should be more concerned about humility because that's one thing a demon can never fake. The arrival of this son of David on Palm Sunday came on the other side of a whole lot of effort and it came in the spirit of glorious humility. And I can't help but wonder if he still comes this way. I wonder in what ways Jesus is going to make us sweat as he prepares to reveal his kingly presence through sanctuary in East Tulsa. It feels to me like this glorious gift of a building is like a neon sign. It's like a lighted, screaming billboard saying, God, I want to do great things. God is saying, I want to do great things through you. I could have let you be comfortable in Jenks with a building that was built to fit just for you. Anybody remember when you were a little kid? You have parents like mine who would never buy you shoes that fit when you were a kid, right? Because your, your parents were convinced you were going to grow and they did not want to buy shoes again next month. Hello, right? And then there came that moment where it's like you just, you're getting the same size. God is putting this child into shoes that don't fit because he's convinced we're going to grow into them. Are we ready for the growing pains? What if sanctuary is standing today on Palm Sunday before an open door of ministry? Joyful, humble service to the Lord. What if we're standing today and today is a holy invitation to participate in a coming kingdom? I'm going to close just with this small detail. That's, I, I've never thought of about it before, but Origen, uh, I was reading some commentaries on this, and he talked about the fact that Jesus got on a colt that had never been ridden before. And what he said was, his quote was, those who afterwards would come to believe, but who had yet never sat under the authority of the word prior to Jesus coming. Authority is a word. You're probably all going to run out of the building just because I said it today. Like, it's like, oh, gosh. A preacher, pastor talking about authority. 
I just want to talk about it. I want to think about it. I want to mull over it in that Mark 10 text where authority in the kingdom is not about being served, but serving. And I just want to close with this thought from N.T. Wright. This passage, the one that we've read this morning, already raises questions for us in our own following of Jesus and loyalty to him. Are we ready to put our property at his disposal, to obey his orders even when they puzzle us? Are we ready to go out of our way to honor him, finding in our own lives the equivalence of cloaks to spread on the road before him and branches to wave to make his coming into a real festival? Or have we so domesticated and trivialized our Christian commitment, our devotion to Jesus himself, that we look on him simply as someone to help us through the various things we want to do anyway, someone to provide us with comforting religious experiences? Have we forgotten what in biblical terms a true king might be like? Let's pray.